dear God, prepare for us tonight a rich feast for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm speaking tonight about the passage from St. John's Gospel. Uh, this is a symbolic action that Jesus takes. Um, it's very deliberate. It's a deliberate deed, small in a way, and yet has an immense uh, impact. Um, you know what symbolic actions are, of course. You know, the deed is small, the scope, the effect is large, the meaning is large. This happens, of course, at the Boston Tea Party, where we told those Brits what they could do with their Earl Grey. You know, taxation without representation. What, what kind of, what situation is that? I love, you know, I'm, I'm an Anglican, so I can make fun of us. It's okay. Um, us, as if I'm British. Uh, you know, a symbolic a gesture. I saw it last year at Mo- during Monday Thursday when Pope Francis was uh, washing the feet of prisoners. Uh, it was a way of saying not just that we care for you at this time, but that there's something about the ministry of Christ which directly relates to those who are in uh, bad straits. It was a pregnant gesture. But we do this uh, not just in a grand scale. It's not just on the news. We do this in our own lives, too. Haven't you ever burned love letters? You know, you had this ex, and you don't like them anymore. And you think that, the, uh, that it would be helpful for you, a grand catharsis, if you torched everything that reminded you of this person. I've done it. It's really rewarding. Um, <laughs> Uh, or, you know, but I, I had a, a serious situation occur once with a friend who, uh, she left her husband temporarily for, for a legit reason. Uh, but, but she um, later, several years later, put on her wedding ring again because she was willing to give it another try and, and forgive him and, and try to make things work. And that was a little gesture, but it meant everything. And uh, that happened here at this church a few years ago. There was this uh, student. He, was, uh, he, he thought that there was something to the message, you know, something to the gospel, but thought that we were you know, a little full of it, too. And he, he was very influenced by the new atheists, and so he thought that Dawkins was probably a little bit more right than Ethan Magnus, and he, um, <laughs> or more importantly, the Nicene Creed. You know? and, um, but but at, at one point... Uh, he, he was coming to the church regularly, and he said, you know, I really feel out of it not taking Holy Communion, and can you tell me what I would need to do to take Communion? And that's a wonderful question. And I said, well, I said, you have to come to a place where you believe that there really is this higher power. Even if you have questions, even if you don't understand it entirely, that's okay. But, and that this power, whom we call God, sent this person named Jesus that he really, that God came to us in this way, and he came to us principally to deal with the with the the guilt that we have on the inside. I said to him, you know, you're a person that's really magnificent, and you're troubled too, and somebody came to save you from that trouble. And if you can believe that Jesus did that, that he's not just an important historical figure, but that he relates to you and your secrets and your hardship. Then, then you, you should come to the table. He was already baptized as a baby. He had just had gone away from the faith. And, and it was funny. So one day he comes up, you know how we do here, and he, he, he didn't cross his arms this time for a blessing. Instead, he took one hand and slapped the other hand on top of it and gave me a wink. And I'm like, 
Yeah, all right. Uh, the body of Christ given for you. It was an evangelical confession in the wink of an eye. Really. And he said, I really came to, I came to a place where I began to understand. And so, um, so that, that was a, a pregnant gesture. It was an incredible sign. And this is um, what's happening on a grander scale in John chapter 2. Uh, Jesus' first miracle of turning water to wine. It's a deeply symbolic gesture. And in, in, in some ways, it's an odd gesture, an odd miracle for a holy man, you know. It's a strange way to go public as Messiah, like a kegger. <laughs> That's what he's doing, you know. I mean, let's, I gotta say, I know some of you are raised Southern Baptist. You can't get mad at me. But the Greek word is oinus. It means wine. Like, it doesn't mean grape juice. Like, Welch's wouldn't be interested in this story. The thing is, um, it's the same word when St. Paul later says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He said don't be drunk with wine because you could be. Uh, it, like, it's fermented drink, and it's the same word used here. Jesus made a lot of wine, and, and it's a weird miracle because it's not like pastoral. Yes, he saved a family from some indignity, but it wasn't like he healed a leper or raised the dead or fed 5,000 starving people. He just made a lot of booze. No, I mean, he made a lot of wine right, for this party. And what, I mean, what is that? Why, why did he even do this? And, uh, and so I want to say tonight that what he was doing here was a sign. Remember, John doesn't use the word miracle. He calls them signs. And a sign is something that encapsulates but also points beyond itself to an even, even greater reality. And he's trying to say something about himself. See, he wasn't just saving a family from indignity. Neither was he just making something extraordinary you know, Cabernet Sauvignon, out of something ordinary like water, he was, um, he was giving us a sign of a great shift, a tectonic shift. I want to talk about that shift tonight, because that's what this sign is all about. Something is occurring in the universe at this moment as that water changes. Something from the old age is fading away, and something from the new age is arriving and arriving powerfully. I want to set the scene, because it's great. It has family dynamics. It's a wonderful story. I laughed when Eric was reading it. Okay, so verse 3. Can you follow along with me? Verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Um, By the way, my hour is a, a technical term in John's gospel for his death, like his glorification. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's very interesting, very interesting scene. Notice how honest the New Testament is in just recording tension, uh, tension um, between Jesus and his mother, because she's being a little pushy. You know, this is, this is you know, it's Jesus, uh, he had a miraculous birth, um, you know, this is her son, she's very proud of him, and she knows he's a special person, and, and is sort of trying to push him into a place of fixing a practical problem, thinking, you know, you could deal with this. You, you could do it. You've been a carpenter now, an apprentice, for a long, long time. I'm not sure that was the purpose of your birth. And here is an opportunity for you to, to, for you to prevent an indignity, and wouldn't that be really terrific? And Jesus, in response, calls her lady. Like, not mom, you know, mother, dear mother, 
but instead woman, which is not, it's not rude, but it's not polite. Uh, it's, it's, it's suggesting some disassociation, really. It is suggesting that Jesus is moving away from, uh, princi- from being identified principally with blood kinship and moving now into another ministerial realm and responsibility. Um, and so he distances himself in a sense, it's not my hour. And what's fantastic about this Jewish mother is he says, just ignore him, right? Or, or, you know, or no, excuse me, um, when he says that, just ignore him, uh, do whatever he tells you, indicating that there's something, there's, there's going to be a command forthcoming, you know, and, uh, and he'll fix it. He'll take care of things. Now, there, there could be a misreading of this passage. My uncle Chuck, who was a wonderful man, would consider himself a devout Catholic, though he hasn't been to Mass in about 10 years. He goes to a Lutheran church like twice a year. But, uh, but he prays the rosary every day. And he said, Ethan, you would know this because you're a priest. If you can't get something from the Lord by praying to Jesus, you could always pray to Mary because she can make her son do things. <laughs> and I said, based upon what biblical evidence? And he said, you know, the water to wine store. He didn't want to do it. She made him do it. <laughs> she can make things happen. He actually doesn't have a mafia-esque or Italian accent. I just added that for the effect. <laughs> he can fix it. This Jesus can fix it. But, but friends, uh, uh, let us not believe that Jesus was hamstrung into doing a miracle that he didn't want to do. That's actually not what's happening in this text. Um, remember, Jesus was the only one whose will was truly free. Our wills are always uh, compromised by sin, by, by a shattered inward life. Jesus was a person who was unobscured by sin. And so he wasn't you know, bullied into doing things. He actually had a mind that was free. And so he, but, 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 but what he was subservient to in that freedom, and this is perfect freedom, is the will of his father. He only does what he sees his father doing. And so he is using this push from his mother to do something not just immediate, not just solving uh, that day's crisis. He is using this opportunity to do something theological that will point to himself and that will actually signal the beginning of the end of the old era. That's what's happening right now, using this opportunity. And so um, Jesus gives a rather strange command to the attendants of the wedding. This is it in verse 6. Please follow along. Uh, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Now this is a scandalous act, friend. Um, the, 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 the jars here matter. They had one purpose and one only. It, these were sacred vessels. Sacred vessels. The one purpose was religious purification. Um, you may know that first century Judaism, based on both the Bible and also rabbinic traditions that grew up around the Bible, had what, they were very invested in the idea of ritual purity. It was this idea and it's a brilliant and very beautiful idea in its own way that to encounter God, to come before God with integrity, you couldn't just be cavalier about it. This is God, after all, and he's not your homeboy. He's not on your level. Uh, this, is, this is the Ensof we're talking about. This is the one who is holy other. This is the one who is Yahweh, who is I am that I am, and that isn't treated uh, without great care. And so one of the ways that they demonstrated that theological care was physical washing. 
They would wash their bodies, their hands, their implements that they would use for worship, and the water was stored in big, big jars, stone jars, not clay jars, stone jars. And so um, this is what is happening here. Jesus is taking this very idea of ritual cleansing and purification before you meet your maker rightly, you know, holy, holy, holy. Um, He is taking that and changing something important about it. Now, before we get to that, notice that these sacred vessels that were to hold water were empty. Did you notice that in the text? He had to say, fill them up. They were empty. Now, a lot of commentators are saying, um, firstly, that John does nothing by accident. There's no accidental detail in his gospel. And second, that John is stressing here with these empty jars the need for completion and fulfillment in the Old Testament's understanding, right? Because these vessels or stone jars are, in a way, symbolic of the religion of Israel. You must be holy as your God is holy, and you must approach him rightly. And one of the ways that we symbolize that right approach is being clean. And so um, the, um, the idea in the Old Testament, and this is really uh, core and key, is that the Old Testament, which we love and believe is thoroughly inspired, um, is not in and of itself complete. It doesn't stand on its own. In fact, the Old Testament itself, in the great inspired texts, long for and prophesy about a coming Christ who will fulfill all the old ideas and pictures and prophecies and metaphors and images. Somebody will come and make these things more real. They'll fulfill all of the old pledges, all of the old pictures and promises. Um, and so the, the Old Testament anticipates this fulfillment, anticipates that more is coming, and that this more will arrive in a person, in a human being, who is also God with us. I've been thinking a lot about needing more lately because I watch a lot of TED Talks. You watch TED Talks? You can go to YouTube and watch TED Talks about almost anything. They're 20-minute lectures, and if you hear them, you'll learn a few things about life. But I will, I will save you the effort And I will now summarize all TED Talks for you. Are you not excited? Are you not entertained? Um, Here is the summary of all TED Talks. Life is very hard. We're all in this together. (laughs) That's about it, really. I mean, life is complex. I mean, I'm I'm always sort of, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board for about five minutes. I'm like, yeah, life is hard, but we're all together. There needs to be something more than that, though. You know, I don't like the message is something like, yeah, we're part of a big struggle with a bunch of other little losers, but we're, you know, we're we're working it out. And but I need more than just corroboration. I need more than just company and misery. Does that do anything for you? I mean, not 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 in the long run. I had a therapist once. He was a great guy, but he said, Ethan, this will help your anxiety a great deal. Whenever you have a, an anxious moment or fear captures you, what you need to do is sit with the fear as if it's your friend and let the fear, like a crest of a wave, like it rises and falls like a wave in the ocean. Okay, so that's what I did. I sat there. It was like I was in an ashram or something. I'm sitting there and I'm feeling the fear and it rises and it leaves. And I'm just supposed to sit there and notice it rising and leaving and I was thinking in the midst of this, I don't know where my car keys are, and um, I'm not sure if this is going to help me long run. Like, it may be good, right? Doctors are good, therapists are good, um, that sort of um, odd ashramic meditation may be fine, but I need more than that. It's just not enough. And the same thing was true then. 
um, hand washing and ritual cleansing, as good as it was and as inspired as it was and as helpful as it was as a picture of what was to come, or, or cultivating a need of fulfillment, all of that was good, but we needed more. We needed something to fulfill all these old ideas. Not just to make them ideas, but something in flesh. And that is what we have in the miracle that's occurring in these swirling, uh, in this swirling water in these pots. It isn't just about the preserving of reputations for this ill-prepared couple. Um, it's a signal that the old era, which involved and was in some ways encapsulated by this cleansing ritual, preparing oneself for God, was giving way to something more. That metaphor was soon to become reality right in front of you, so close that you could actually taste the kingdom of God. I mean, that's the idea here. God is stepping closer. All of the old ideas, true as they were, are now becoming truer, enfleshed. And that's what the kingdom is all about. And so Jesus is bringing about a grand fulfillment in the form of water to wine from these jars of ritual purification water. Now, you know, the Old Testament prophets, uh, sometimes a cranky bunch, but ultimately they had a redemptive uh, streak. And they were men of great perspective. You know, these were not idiots. They were not flakes. They were not phonies. These were people who were steeped in a, in a grand tradition and believed that while God was distant from us because of sin, because of the corrupt problem of, the, of human nature and the actions that leak out from it, um, there was a distance there, but someday that distance would be overcome, and it was not going to be overcome by us. It was going to be overcome by God himself who would walk toward us, even though it would cost him the world. Uh, that's the idea. And so uh, th- these men foresaw this great change and reconciliation in which two parties would come back together. Um, th- they foresaw it and they gave it certain images. And two of the images found in the prophet Isaiah, arguably the greatest prophet, um, r- certainly wrote more than the others. Isaiah has two prominent images, though others as well. And two prominent images are a wedding and wine. Those are signs for him of the apocalypse, wedding and wine. It was a picture of the world coming back together again, of wounds being salved, of healing being poured out, of justice uh, being let loose in the world. Uh, and we have these two, two um, texts that I want to read you. The first we, we had read tonight, Isaiah 62. This is wedding imagery, apocalyptic imagery. You, the text says, shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no be more be termed desolate. Those were your old names and your old associations, but I'm going to fix it. This is what God's saying. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. But a sign of God's reuniting, disparate um, rebels, bringing them all back together to himself, is a wedding. More than that, it's wine. Isaiah 25, earlier in his book. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Now, think about Jesus. You know, he was, he was a Jewish man raised in a context with texts being read to him uh, on the Sabbath every week of his life. And his mind is filled with these, uh, these ideas from the prophets. And he knows about this imagery. And so what does he choose to deliberately do to start off his ministry? 
he fulfills Isaiah's great vision at a wedding, providing not only wine, but the best kind of wine. Do you remember that part of the passage? It's fascinating. He says, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, then the poor wine. You know, when they're too, you know, when they have the biblical buzz and they can't taste it. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus, you see what he's doing? He's deliberately fulfilling Isaiah's dream. This is what was to happen. This is a picture, an ancient picture of what the kingdom of God coming to us would look like. And, and it looks like in this case, 750 bottles worth or 2,400 glasses of messianic wine. And so we can see, we can see what's happening here, that Jesus is giving us a sign. And it's a contrast with the first sign of Moses, by the way. Moses' first miracle was a water miracle. What did he turn water into? With the help of God, of course. Blood. It was a judgment miracle against Egypt. Here we have something different, a miracle of blessing. And it's different from the old rules of water purification. It's a sign of mirth and joy, and happiness, and celebration that the new thing is here. The kingdom has finally arrived. We've waited and waited, and we don't have to wait anymore. Because it's all true, and it was always true. And now we can finally taste the truth. And, uh, and so this first sign shows us that the new era is characterized by mirth and generosity, and John calls it the glory of God. Can you believe that? The glory of God is a really great party. That's what glory looks like here. Um, and so uh, this first sign was a signal to the crowd, for those who had eyes to see and ears to hear, but it's also a signal for us. It suggests to us that the dawn of the new world is better and sweeter than we can imagine, and it's not harsh, and it's not out to get you. It's a different idea. Um, I think this idea, the Christ of Cana, I think the Christ of Cana can help us. I think the Christ of Cana can help us to see more clearly the God whom he embodies, uh, the character of the Christian pilgrimage, and the life of the world to come. So now let me spend 40 minutes talking about these things. <laughs> no, okay. okay. To perceive God, okay? Many biblical images for God that are very good and lofty. Father, creator, judge, savior. But let's not forget the concept of God as gift giver. As gift giver. Um, I was told in uh, church camp when I was young uh, to break one of the commandments, uh, really. They said, well, uh, we want you all to draw a picture of God. I'm like, this is commandment number two, but um, I'm not supposed to do that. But, uh, but, but we were supposed to draw a picture of God or what we associated with God. And I drew, of course, Mary Poppins. <laughs> Clearly. Practically perfect in every way. Well, I thought of something, of somebody that was really fastidious and sort of bean counting and... Uh, and always very prim and proper, and that's what I thought of God. I mean, so I drew, of course, Mary Poppins. I drew a very, very angry and stern and cautious-looking Julie Andrews. Um, I want to say, friends, this is not the image that we get from the Bible, certainly not from the Christ of Cana. Um, remember, this is what Jesus taught us, that God is not some, uh, God is not an auctioneer. God is not, he doesn't work at Walmart and demanding your money. That's not, that's not how things work. Um, he says this in Luke 12, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
And Matthew 7, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you? It's the giving nature of God that Jesus talked all about. And he also lived it. This is a man who poured out his time and his friendship and his reputation to people who didn't want any of it. And he did it willingly, giving himself away until he stopped breathing for you. You know, I mean, the man stopped breathing for you. He gave away everything. And this is, this is what we have in the Christ of Cana. It shows us that God is not some fastidious bean counter, but is lavish and generous. And he doesn't count the cost like we do, you know. Isn't it great? God is not like us. And he's not like your mother. And he's not like your father. And he's not like the people in your life who have reflected him imperfectly. Even if your parents were great, or the models were great, he's even better than that. And more generous than that. And that's what we see in this passage. But this also gives us a perception, I think, of the the Christian life. That the Christian life is about mirth at, at, at its heart, you know. It's about celebration. And I want to know if that's your experience of religion. I don't know, maybe. I don't know. Is that your experience? Or what has Christianity, or what you think is Christianity, done to you? How has it affected you? Has it made you worried or overly cautious, preoccupied with concern? Or has it made you into steel? Hard and cold and inflexible. Um, You know, I think if it has done that to us, if we find that most of our Christian energy is spent arguing, debating, fighting, defending, maybe we've missed something along the way. And maybe the Christ of Cana can teach us something. Or maybe 2,400 glasses of wine would help. Because mirth is at the heart of the Christian religion. You know, mirth is not in the devil's toolbox. He doesn't have any of it. It uniquely belongs to the sacrificial God that we see in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, I have to ask, if we are given, as I sometimes am, toward deep anger... And living out my Christian life in light of that. Why is that the case? Why is that the case? Why should we be principally moved by anger or panic? We shouldn't be because, friends, the battle's already won. Christ has risen from the dead. The game is over. I mean, it's all done. Everything's done. And so we belong to a victorious, sacrificial God. You know? So what's the worst thing that could happen to you? You could die. But for him who is the resurrection and the, and the life, that makes you his cup of tea. You're just fine in the hands of somebody who was once dead and will never die again. And so it helps us to perceive God. It helps us to perceive the mirth in the Christian life. And it helps us to perceive the life of the world to come. You know, before Cana, what we had, we had glimpses and little ideas and metaphors and shadows, but they became tangible and tasteable at this wedding. Um, you know, I want to say it to you that uh, I'm sure heaven will have a library, but it's going to be more than just reading about experiences that you've never had, reading about pleasures that are somewhere out there, reading about restoration that you don't know anything about. That's not the image. There's something about the heavenly realm as it closes in upon us and will finally capture us all fully that it's, it's, you'll get to see reality, taste reality, be in the midst of reality. C.S. Lewis used to say that our world now is, is half unreal. That's what sin does. It makes things not real anymore. But the reality is coming. 
Um, and, and, and that's what we see in this kingdom. It's a kingdom you can taste. Um, and so we have in this text the, the sign of a gloriously tangible, generous, lavish kingdom. And the glimmers in the wine of Cana, we can occasionally see them in our own experience. And so when you have this moment of mirth with your child or your, or your uh, spouse or a friend or when you connect with somebody, when, when somebody brings forgiveness to you, whenever you see these little glimmers, just know all these things that are coming to pass in real time and space, it only gets better from here. That's what Cana shows us. It's just going to get better from here. Solider more tangible as the kingdom of God, this generous kingdom, encroaches upon us. Uh, I'll close with uh, the 1916 uh, silent film directed by uh, D.W. Griffith. It was entitled Intolerance, Love's Struggle Through the Ages. It was a silent movie, but, uh, but one that was very beautiful. Um, and the movie is all about the waves of hardship that crash against the human story. It's a very difficult film in some ways to watch. You know, it details the fall of Babylon, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, and other historical incidents. But in the middle of the film, in a way that doesn't really fit, we have Cana of Galilee. Jesus turning water to wine. It's one of the few places in the film that's stable. And it's safe, and it's warm, and it's joyful. And then there's, there's chaos again. And then at the end of the film, something beautiful happens. There's a picture of a prison wall falling down and all the prisoners leaving, taking their hats off in this sort of prayerful posture. And then there are children and parents and prisoners all talking together in peace. And they're all talking around these old implements of war, cannons and guns, and they all have ivy growing all over them and they're rusty because it's all done now. That somehow... Heaven and earth are coming together. And then, as if, as if that's not good enough, the scene ends with, literally, an angelic feet descending from the top of the screen. And they don't show him. They never used to show Christ in the old movies. But it was the return of Jesus Christ. And then light, uh, light um, bursts into the film from north and south and east and west, forming a cross in the middle of the screen. And then the cre- screen goes completely white, and it's the end of the movie. It shows that everything is on its way to a fuller reality, that everything is going to be restored. It was hinted at at Cana of Galilee. It became very tangible for a moment. It was seen even more clearly in the Eucharistic feast. And, and, and there will be a day when it will be all you will ever know. And it will be as if every bit of hardship um, that you've suffered and endured or that you're enduring now will lose its sting and effect. It will be a scar of glory. And so um, this is the idea. This is what's happening here. Um, it's a promise of a future reality, this sign that Jesus gave us. And it was said after this sign that Jesus' disciples believed in him. May that truly be said of us even 2,000 years later. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.